What's up, everybody? Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And welcome back to our podcast where we talk about evil stuff. And pudding. <laughs> and pudding. Actually, no. I don't think we've ever talked about pudding, so that's... Well, that's how we got our name. You talked about pudding the first episode. We talked about someone's brain looking like pudding. Yeah. Not actual, like, tapioca pudding or anything. Yeah, ew. Yeah, it's gross. I don't know why I said tapioca. Blech. Anyways. Butter, butterscotch, maybe? Gross. Okay. But uh, today is the final part of Henry Lee Lucas and Otis the Tool. So thank God I get to be done with the him after today. Twins. That's my new name for him is the Asshat Twins. But I promise you, I believe that this part will be way more interesting than the first part. It, there's it, The story is just fascinating. Like, interesting or fucked up? Interest, both. Because <laughs> the first one was both. a mess. We do, we do both here. Real good. <laughs> oh, we're experts at the fucked up part. Yeah. We love telling those stories. We do. Do we have any news? No. Oh, we're getting stickers in. We are getting stickers in. Yeah, so we need to get those up. We'll post about them soon. We'll post about them. Hit us up on social media, and uh, yeah, if you want one? See if we can get you one. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we're selling them or what we're doing with them. We might just send the first few out and see. Yeah, definitely send a few out. Yeah, and maybe next episode we can announce like a giveaway or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we just gotta. Y'all can do wait something. Wait get the stickers in before we can do. That. We can mail. Yeah, well, if we get them in and we don't like them, we're not gonna send them to you. Exactly. <laughs> Or if we ordered the wrong size and they're like the size of a stamp, I'm not going to send it to people either. Yeah, because I ordered them. So <laughs> God knows. <laughs> no, it's probably best because I'm the one that orders the random crap. Yeah, that's true. Thank you, Coconut. She's Coconut, had it Coconut already. Coconut already disapproves with us tonight. <laughs> Even though the mood is well set because there's a thunderstorm outside. And we've restarted the beginning like four times now because I kept saying stupid stuff. No, it's just- <laughs> Restart, restarts happen. I'm keeping it real. Yeah, restarts happen. You got to edit. You got to restart. You got to you make mistakes. You don't just get on this thing and talk perfectly every time you talk. No. Lord knows everybody's heard me. They have no idea how much of me we've deleted. Right? A lot because I can. Oh, we know. I get a little offensive. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> we we got to cut me out sometimes. Especially got, towards the end of episodes when I've had a few drinks in me and I start rambling about some dumb shit. We have to filter you. <laughs> Trying not to get us canceled. <laughs> yeah, not yet. <laughs> but, um, hey, we have a new podcast rec for you guys today. Oh, we do. That's right. Um, as you well know, we like to share what we've been listening to. And this week, we are highlighting uh, a podcast called Nocturnal Distractions. Best name ever. Love it. With uh, Kendra and April. And they are two best friends who started a podcast for us night owls. Or, you know, normal people who dig some good old-fashioned spooky crime. So take a quick listen to their trailer and make sure you check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, this is Kendra. And this is April. And you're listening to our podcast, Nocturnal Distractions. We're just two best friends who decided to uh, start a podcast. And, well, correction, Kendra decided to start this and she convinced me to come along for the journey. Yeah, uh, that did happen. I kind of tricked her into coming along. I'm a true crime junkie, and April is um not so much. Not so much, but I'm getting better at it. Yeah, she is. And so together we are covering true crime, and we are covering missing persons and mystery and paranormal and all that fun stuff. From way back, from the 1500s. Because that's what she likes to do, up until current day stuff, which is what I like to do. So please come join us in our completely unscripted, um, hilarious journey of me learning about crime shit. 
and everything that causes you guys to have nocturnal distractions at night. Welcome back. Let's just... Definitely go check them out, though, because they sound fun. They are fun to listen to. Yeah. They tell good stories. They're hilarious, too. And they're good people. They are good people. Y'all know we don't recommend other podcasts that we don't even like. We're not going to recommend someone that we don't listen to ourselves. That's for sure. A lot of ones we do recommend are our friends. Absolutely. We meet them through podcasting, so it's pretty cool. Absolutely. And we like and respect them, so... Listen to them and give them a follow on social media. So let's just hop right into it because I'm. this is going to be lengthy. As you said last time, raw dog, no lube. <laughs> See, I can come up with some good one-liners. Like You're not you. supposed to. That's my job. That's your job. Okay. That's my job. Okay. Don't take my damn. That's all I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you're so good at it. Like, that's literally all I do. So don't take it from me. <laughs> So if you haven't already, please go back and listen to part one for context, because otherwise this yeah. isn't just, this is going to make no sense. It's going to make way less. It's You'll probably be able to pick up after a little bit, but you, you missed out on a lot. A lot. A lot. So there's so much background in part one that you just have to listen. It's literally all part one was, was background. Like you dug so, so deep into like the origins of these two and everything from, like we always do, you know, yeah. start to crime. From birth, from birth to, to crime. From birth to grave. That's what we do here. Something. Yeah. Yeah. So, however, here's a very quick and general recap because, as Patrick can confirm, I specialize in telling the same story over and over again. It's kind of my thing. <laughs> you are, you have like a PhD in it. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, in part one, we covered both Henry and Otis's very chaotic and horribly abusive childhoods. Both were allegedly prostituted at a very early age. Both suffered seizures. Both were physically and emotionally abused by their mothers. Lots of parallels in their childhoods, actually. And And it's just insane that these two even crossed paths to begin with. I do want to stress that it wasn't just abusive childhoods. No, they were fucking extremely like there was no way heard of in my life. There was no way they were going to come out of that. We're talking about like hitting kids with two by fours, dressing them like girls, prostituting, prostituting them. them. Yeah. You know, one of them's parent was a prostitute in the same room, pulling tricks with the kids there. Like really, really sad. I mean, it is extreme abuse. And then Henry killed his first victim at the age of 15 and Otis, already a prostitute at the age of 14, killed his first victim brutally. Not just murdered him. Like, yeah, it wasn't like, brutally. oops, I stabbed you or no. shot you. It was like brutal was ass bad. murders. I won't go back over that story. You can go back and re-listen to part uh, one. But. Yeah, I don't want to go over that story again. And they were also, by this time, at the age of 15 and 14, already necrophiliacs. So, mm. we also talked about how Henry and Otis met. And then Henry met his family, and the two men, who are now lovers, effectively abducted Otis's 9- and 11-year-old niece and nephew. Sorry, it's Otis. I keep saying Otis. Otis is such an odd name. It really is. Otis is odd. You want to say Otis. It's just, it's... Well, he's odd, so. Uh, So they abducted Otis's 9- and 11-year-old niece and nephew, Frank and Becky, which was not my favorite part of the story. That's by a any horrible means. part, man. Those two children bore witness to most of Henry and Otis's brutal and horrific crimes while on the road, drifting from state to state with them. And when we say horrific, horrific. And didn't Henry also claim that him and his 11-year-old niece were in love or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And and so there was that kind of crap going on, and too. disturbingly, Henry began to groom Becky and begin assaulting her. He would later confess how in love they were, which I refuse to believe. Yeah, that's That's ridiculous. gross. I'm not going to 
claim that that's nope. fact. I'm just not. She was a child. As I said in the beginning of part one, I will be using the word allegedly a lot, and it gets annoying, but I have to. You have to with this one. Because many of Henry's confessions to the 600 to 1,000 murders he confessed to cannot be proven. Yes, 600 to 1,000 murders. And again, this is not you know, court testimony of 600 to 1,000 murders. This is just him telling the story, like, I've done all these things. To, which is to why you're police, using yeah. The allegedly. To authorities. He's telling, what was his nickname again? The Confession Killer. The Confession Killer, because he basically just confessed to all this stuff that they can't tell and they, real or not. Yeah, however, they are both, Henry and Otis, both are still proven serial killers. This we know for sure. Absolutely, just no, their numbers. Just not that much. Many people, I don't think that's humanly possible. But to that account, the reason they didn't disclaim a lot of it is because a lot of disappearances and missing people in those areas happened in the times these guys were claiming to be doing a lot of these murders. Well, lucky for you, we are going to dig into that and um, find out how this came about, how he ended up confessing to so many murders and why. And yeah, it's that's just going to be a jaw-dropping part of this episode. Okay, yeah, no, I'm just recapping what you talked about in part yeah, one. Yeah, sure. That's why they didn't discredit a lot of what these oh, yeah. killings he claimed because yeah. they fit timelines of disappearances. They committed awful and vile crimes separately, but together we're about to see a whole new level of brutality and chaos coming from these absolutely unarguably twisted individuals. And after their capture, their arrests, the shitstorm just got crazier and crazier. So get ready to hate Henry and Otis, be really pissed off at some Texas Rangers, and I have to give you a little teaser here. We're going to touch on exactly how exactly Otis Tool is tied to Jeffrey Dahmer. Have you heard of him? <laughs> oh, is, is he a nice man that works yes, at, the very. Mail, at the mail place down the street? At or? Disney World. Disney, oh, Disney World. Yes. Is that the fucking Jaws ride? That's He's Mickey Mouse. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't so, ever want to go to Disney World. Stick around to find out how he's related, or not related, but tied to Jeffrey Dahmer. That's intriguing. So let's begin and be done with these two demon perverts from hell. Asshats. Asshat twins. Asshat twins. Okay, so where we left off in part one, Frank and Becky, Otis's nephew and niece, were taken into custody away from these evil monsters and placed into a juvenile home in Florida. Thank God, right? But then, however... Becky's rapist, Henry, helped her escape, and now she is back on the road with him and her uncle, Otis. Frank is still in the children's home. Right. Becky is no place that any child should Should be right now. According to records, the threesome traveled to Houston, Texas, and gave blood at an Alpha blood bank on January 20th, 1982, not because they're charitable, but because they needed money. money. Easy way to get money, yeah. The following day, so the 21st, Henry and Otis abandoned their car on the side of the road in Kerrville, Texas, and stole a new car to avoid detection. That's what they do. I mean, I can't even tell you how many cars these people stole. Kerrville, that's in the middle of nowhere. That's where, kind of around where I'm from. Yeah, but that is where I was born. Yeah, it is very small. It's a very small town. Or it was, might have grown. Central Texas. They reached Abilene in their new stolen vehicle, and this is where they found their alleged. Next victim. Again, I'm going to be saying that a lot. Allegedly. I apologize. Allegedly. I'm not sure if she was a motorist or a hitchhiker, but either way, she was traveling on Interstate 20 when she encountered the two men with the young girl, which I'm sure made them a little more appealing, right? And less threatening because they have a young girl with them. 100% less threatening because there's an 11 or 12-year-old girl with them. So it's like you don't 
you instantly don't think that is as bad of things as you would as those two. And if you've seen these two, I'd think bad things when I saw them. Yeah. But a 12 year old girl with them would kind of ease your mind as probably as a female, especially. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So allegedly Henry and Otis picked her up, raped and stabbed her before decapitating her. Then they dumped her body and her head separately, several miles apart from each other. This was kind of their MO. Remember this MO though, because it's something that Henry taught Otis and unfortunately, and this is hard to believe, but Henry is very much the brains of this whole ordeal. And that's, <laughs> that's not saying a lot. Fucking terrifying. <laughs> but Henry really taught Otis how to go about murdering and not being detected. Well, he was more of the seasoned one. Isn't he like 15 years older? He's a bit older than Otis, yes. And he's more of the seasoned I want to say killer. like 10 years or something yeah, like that. He's definitely more yeah. of the seasoned killer, too. Uh, also, please remember Becky is Still witnessing, she's, she's witnessing all of this, all of this, allegedly. So less than three months into their no good robbing, raping, child abducting rampage across the country, Otis became ill. See, he's been an alcoholic since early childhood, and he was having some pretty serious uh, medical issues as a result. Uh, he was having liver issues, which is never good. No, but I can understand why the man drank a lot. Yeah. He had to look in the mirror. <laughs> fucking life as a child was fucked up so badly. But due to liver issues, Otis took on a jaundiced uh, yellow look about him, and he started to vomit every time he would eat or drink something, which is not good. No, that's not like, good at all. Yeah, you need medical care when you get to that point. Henry, of it's course, mm-hmm. Henry, of course, had no idea what to do to help him. So the trio headed back in their stolen car to Florida. That's where Otis is from. And Henry and Becky dumped Otis off at the first hospital they found and just left him there and left. Otis remained in the Jacksonville hospital for the next month recovering. So he was there a while. Yeah. But when he was released, he had zero way of finding out where his lover and his niece had gone. They were drifters, so they could literally be anywhere. Who knows? And driving, who knows? Yeah, they don't stay in one place for more than like a day. He felt alone and absolutely abandoned by the love of his life and his niece. So with all of this pent-up frustration and feelings of abandonment, he needed an outlet. He had lost his killing buddy, so he turned back to his old ways. Remember, he was an arsonist. That's how he got his start. Yeah, he used to sleep in abandoned buildings and light them on fire. Yeah, and that aroused him, he Sexual. said, sexually. Uh, he started committing arsons again. The thrill of setting fires only lasted so long. After he set a few fires, he decided he wanted to kind of amp up the arsons because he was more seasoned by now. He had, you know, killed people. Oh, yeah. Now you can kill people and burn them on. Yeah. And set them on fire. So at one point, he decided to set fire to a house that he knew was occupied. Two people were sleeping on the inside of that house, and they died as a result, which is insane. So he combined his love for killing Mm -hmm. and his sexual gratification probably from killing too with what started him on this path was his weird sexual gratification from starting fires right exactly so combine the two into one world and so in part one we talked about how Otis would claim that acts of arson aroused him greatly which is so weird however he was concerned that it was going to draw way too much unwanted attention because you know fires and shit yeah buildings <laughs> burning do that so he came up with a different plan Otis stole himself a nice new white Cadillac and drove himself to Jack- from Jacksonville, Florida to Hollywood, Florida, just looking for trouble. Mm-hmm. 
And it was here that he would commit one of the most notorious crimes in U.S. history. Are you ready? Uh, Yeah. I don't think you are. Oh, I am. Trigger warning. Child murder coming up. This is a rough one, too. I'm not going to go into too much detail because, again, children and it. It gets to me. But on July 27th, 1981, six-year-old Adam Walsh accompanied his mother, Reeve Walsh, to a Sears department store after she had spotted a lamp that she had wanted to purchase on sale that day. Just a typical day out running errands for the mother and son. We've yeah. done it a million times. Hundreds of times. Adam hung out at the toy section. He's six years old, remember, um, of the Sears department store while his mother went to the home section. See, the store, and you're going to be able to identify with this, Patrick. The Sears store back then had an Atari gaming system hooked up, and there were uh, there was a line of boys just kind of waiting for a turn. Hell yeah, and parents dumped them as soon as they went there because they yeah. didn't go shopping without their kid with them. It's way more interesting than shopping and for a dumb lamp. It's the early 80s. <laughs> like, no one's worried about someone right. running up and snatching your kid. Exactly. Well, these boys, uh, all waiting in line to play Atari, uh, they were all a bit older than Adam, and they weren't very good at taking turns. And they all started arguing about who was going to go next, as they do. Of course. An argument broke out, and a security guard herded all the boys out the door outside the shopping mall. Like, outside, outside. Yeah. And this included six-year-old Adam. Now, the rest of the boys were all older than Adam and probably at the mall on their own. Like, came there on their bikes or whatever. Right, right. But Adam wanted to get back to his mom inside the store. However, it is very likely, we don't know, but it's very likely that he was just far too shy to speak up six yeah and with all the other boys gone adam stood outside the sears store too scared to go back in kind of afraid to get in trouble we think this is speculation but that's kind of his personality he obeys and he's just shy and quiet he stood there alone for only a minute before a big new white cadillac pulled up alongside him and a friendly soft-spoken man rolled his window down and asked if he was lost as you may have guessed this man is oddest tool Somehow, he lured six-year-old Adam into the front seat of the car and drove off. Adam Walsh would never be seen alive again. The disappearance of Adam Walsh became one of the most widely publicized crimes I just in, put it together. in American history. You got it. Holy shit. I just realized it. For the Walsh family, the unknown whereabouts of their son was absolutely beyond devastating. And unfortunately, things would only get worse. And for those of you... We'll get there. Don't know. Yeah. You'll, I'm, I'm not going to give it up. Yeah. I'm just saying you're going to see what I just realized in the middle of this. Be like, oh. <laughs> like, holy shit moment. Okay. So on August 10th, 1981, two fishermen discovered Adam's severed head in a drainage canal in Vero Beach, Florida, about 100 miles from Hollywood. A coroner ruled later that Adam's cause of death was asphyxiation, asphyxiation, and the state of his remains suggested that Adam had died several days before his head was discovered. The rest of Adam's body has never been located to this day. However, after the abduction and brutal murder of Adam Walsh, Otis later claimed to have driven Adam's body back home to Jacksonville, where he found an old abandoned refrigerator that he used as kind of a janky incinerator to dispose of the young boy's remains. As the manhunt pursued, the public thought for sure they knew who was responsible for this horrific murder of such a beautiful little boy, and he is beautiful. I'll post a picture of him on our IG. Oddly enough, there was yet another prolific serial killer active in the air. <clears throat> excuse me, in the area at the same time that Adam went missing. 
You want to guess who that was? Dahmer. That's right, Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer lived in Florida during the time of Adam's abduction. And in fact, a man matching Jeffrey's description was seen kind of lurking around the Hollywood Mall that very day to include the toy area of that particular Sears department store. So, huge coincidence. I could see that. He's bigger, but he kind of looks a little bit like... Or maybe there was just another guy that looked like Dahmer there. Yeah, maybe there was another guy that looked like Dahmer. He denied any involvement, however, years later, Dahmer did. Which is odd had he been guilty because he, at that time, was serving multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole and had already happily confessed to to every single one of his heinous crimes. I was about to say, he confessed everything he did. He really confessed to this one, too. So, if he was guilty... Why wouldn't he confess to Adam's murder? He's literally confessed to horrific, horrific things. So I think it's pretty fair to say that Dahmer isn't the one responsible for this one, even though it's one hell of a coincidence. Well, we we see this, and we've talked about this in other episodes where they're unsolved. Mm -hmm. They start blaming everybody. Remember we were talking about, um, well, we've talked about it, but we didn't cover it, was the Hitchhiker murders. Yeah. They blamed him on the Zodiac. They blamed him on the Night Stalker. They blamed him on like three different people because they couldn't figure out who was doing it, and they were just nearby at the time absolutely but adam's disappearance is responsible for the creation of you may have heard of it america's most wanted hosted by adam's now very famous father john walsh which i'm sure most of you are familiar with it's also responsible for the passing of multiple laws protecting children so a lot of good came from this absolutely horrific situation and that can all be attributed to adam's amazing family yeah no I mean, they went That's through. still working. They went too. through hell, but you know, you can't even account for the good that John Walsh has done since then. Even Adam's lives he saved. Brother, his brother, his brother take, is took on. Over. Yeah, I mean, his he's took just over amazing. A lot of his dad's roles. The whole family is just phenomenal. Great people. So, as we know, Otis is back in Jacksonville for the time being. Remember, he drove little Adam's body back there to dispose of it. So let's see what Henry and Becky are up to. I don't want to. I know. So it's just the two of them on the road now. And Becky had grown up a little bit. She was almost 15, so she's 14, still very much a child. Oh, yeah. But Henry was telling everyone now that Becky was his wife. That's fucking gross. They had somehow made their way to Maryland and, once there, rented an apartment. And Henry found himself a job at a scrapyard. And for a spell, they kind of look like a normal-ish couple. Remember, (laughs) he's in his, like, mid-40s. Yeah, normal-ish couple. 14 and 40. Married. Not many people like batted an eye, though, which is really hard for me to believe. But Maybe she looked like she was 18 or 19. I don't yeah. know. But soon, Henry got himself into some trouble. Surprise, I know. No. <laughs> a local Maryland teen, a little younger than Becky, went to the police and accused Henry of sexual assault. She claimed that he had forced her hand down his pants. He's just... That's gross. Disgusting. Yeah. So Henry was arrested and received only three months in a local jail. That's it for sexually assaulting a 12 or 13-year-old girl. Beyond they, me. They probably charged him with like lewd conduct. I know. It's just awful. They, probably, they, they clearly didn't charge him with sexual assault or anything. They charged him with like indecent conduct or something like that. But without Henry around to control Becky for three months, remember she was left on her own. Uh, Becky was immediately sent to Florida and placed under the guardianship of the last relative available at this time to care for her. You want to guess who that relative was? Toolbag. Yeah, Otis the tool. So kind of from the frying pan into the fire. (laughs) After Henry served his three-month sentence, we can all guess where he went. Right back to find Otis and Becky in Jacksonville. They're reunited. 
My question just is, why can't someone help this poor girl? How is it not obvious that Otis is not fit to care for her and that he has clear ties to a man who keeps abducting her? I, I just don't see how no one stepped in for her. It's it's baffling to me. Who's going to do that? CPS in the 1980s? Come on now. They, don't, they were barely around. I don't even know if they were around. Anyways, we we saw this coming, but Henry and Otis were itching to return to killing, raping, and robbing. So within five days of Henry returning to them, they had stolen a car and then made their way back or made their way to California. So they're going to California now. Once this trio from hell got to California, they found themselves absolutely broke, no longer able to afford food and gas. So they abandoned their stolen vehicle, as they always do, and they began to walk. A man driving down the road named Jack Smart saw this very sad-looking threesome and could tell that they looked exhausted and hungry. So he pulled over and offered them a ride to wherever they wanted to go, which is very kind. I'd never do it, but, no, but again, it's this very is the 70s, nice of him. 80s. Yeah, exactly. This was still a common thing. Exactly. Can't offer rides. Somehow, some way, Jack Smart offered the three a place to stay in exchange for them helping him and his wife, Obeer Smart, restore furniture. Obeer Smart owned a resale shop, I believe it was. In some places I read it was an antique shop. But either way, they needed help, like refinishing old furniture. Yeah. And for four whole months, Otis and Becky and Henry did just that. This meant that they had a roof over their head and food to eat. Because the Smarts were even kind enough to provide them a small apartment to stay in while they worked. So they have it made. Like, they're not yeah. having to pay rent. They just have to refinish some furniture. And, you know, the family's probably loving it because they got cheap labor. And yeah, exactly. Them and giving them a place to stay. And these right. you know, three people to do all the work that they need. By all accounts, they were super, super, super helpful to the Smart family. Although Jack and his wife found the dynamics between the three kind of weird. They gave them no issue otherwise. It was just kind of bad vibes, you know? It's odd, right? Very odd. And I'm drawing a really eerie comparison between this story mm-hmm. these three and i mean it, it's a loose comparison but the devil's rejects uh, th- three from hell yeah yeah i did too i wonder if that's where they got the inspo from it could be because you know captain spaulding and you know rob zombie's wife plays like his daughter or i don't know what she was in the, except it's a weird connection becky's there. young and a victim but yeah it is kind of weird traveling the country yeah wandering around killing people very very loose that's why i said loosely correlating but it's just Interesting to look I definitely to, felt that too. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. So they were there for four months at the Smart family business. And about at the four-month mark, Obeer Smart, his wife, was done with them. Like, they weren't really giving her a reason to fire them. She just kind of had it with them and their weird love triangle vibes. Them, uh, yeah, because Henry and Otis were obviously a thing. And then Henry and Becky were obviously a thing. It was just weird. So she came up with a solution. Her elderly mother... 80-year-old Kate Rich, who lived in Texas, was on her own and needed a lot of assistance, so why not pawn them off on her? That's fucked up. Yeah, that is kind of fucked up. I wouldn't do that. Kate Rich was living on her own in Ringle, Texas. I've never heard of that place. I was about to say, where the hell is that? It was said that her house was pretty run down and dilapidated, so she was in need of a handyman and in need of someone to kind of help with the housework, which Becky could do. So, Obier and Jack figured that Henry and Otis could help with fixing up the house, and Becky could help with the other household chores like cooking and cleaning. So, it was settled. The Smart family bought the three of them bus tickets to Ringold, 
Texas and drove them all to the, uh, I said gas station, all to the bus station to see them off. By some accounts on the road to Texas, this is really weird, the relationship between the three reached a boiling point. Allegedly, Becky woke up to Henry and Otis having sex in the bus. Allegedly. On the freaking bus. This apparently infuriated her, and she basically gave Henry an ultimatum, telling him that he had to choose between her and her uncle Otis. Otis, excuse me. Henry apparently chose Becky, and as soon as the three of them reached Texas, Henry and Becky got off the bus uh, to go with Kate Rich, and Otis stayed on. And this would be the last time that the two men would ever see each other again. Really? Yeah. So Henry and Becky are on their own once again. They made their way to Kate Rich's house in May of 1982. I couldn't find the exact date. Either way, they were there, and poor Mrs. Rich felt a lot of compassion for Becky. She looked at Becky as kind of a young lost soul. I mean, I'm sure she just, like, exudes trauma, you know? She's only, like, 15 or 16 yeah. at this point, or not even 15, and she's just lost, and she's in love with this 50-year-old fucking psychopath. Allegedly. All we have is Henry's words I know, to I'm take. Just going off the story. So Mrs. Rich was showering her with love and affection, kind of that maternal instinct. And it's probably the first time that Becky's ever experienced, you know, decent treatment and love. Well, she's so. legit hasn't had it since she was at least 10 or 11 because that's when she started rolling with these. She's things. never had it. Yeah. Because remember, yeah, her family's just messed up. Her family is Otis's family. Yeah. As far as Henry goes, Kate generally liked him. He was just kind of there. He wasn't like good or bad, you know. Odd. Initially, he did an okay job of fitting in their small community. However, after a while, some eyebrows started to raise. Well, it's only in a town of 100 people from what I just Yeah, it's and that's very now. small. That's not Yeah, it's not back then. There's probably like 60 people back then. <laughs> after a short time at Mrs. Rich's home, word started getting around town that Henry was taking advantage of the elderly woman. Which, well, surprise, surprise. Would, as soon as he gets there and starts seeing this, you're going to be like, who's this random dude? And he's just getting everything he wants from her. Well, apparently shopkeepers and townspeople were starting to notice that Henry was pocketing what should be grocery money and spending it on, like, cigarettes and booze, the fun stuff. Yeah. And also a flu, a, a flu, a few clerks reported that Henry would try to use checks that appeared to be signed by Kate Rich. It was very clearly not her signature, though. Oh, he's forging. Yeah, he's, yeah, for sure. So check fraud. So he was committing check fraud. Enough cause for alarm. One store tracked down Kate Rich's relatives just to inform them. They're like, hey, I think your mom's getting swindled here, you know? And that resulted in family members coming down and checking on Kate. Well, when her family arrived, they would find that poor Kate was being made to live in an absolute pigsty. The whole place was like worse than when they came. It was trashed. And Henry was laying on her couch, passed out drunk. So instead of pressing charges or taking it any further, the family just decided to give Becky and Henry money for a bus ticket and sent them on their way. Hindsight, they should have pressed charges. We'll see why here in a bit, but it is what it is. Anyways, instead of catching a bus, Henry pocketed the bus fare and decided to hitchhike with Becky instead. So he didn't even hop on the bus. Good Lord. And this is where the story takes a little bit of a surprising turn. And it's definitely an aspect of Henry's story that I had never known about. So, okay. Henry and Becky are hitchhiking now. They're still in Texas on the side of the road. 
Becky looks absolutely exhausted. She's miserable. She's pissed off. She's getting tired of it. Texas is hot AF, so they're probably just yeah, miserable. Yeah, summertime? Yeah. Yeah, it's hot as crap. Well, a man pulls over and offers them a ride, so they accept and they get in. And as they drive, they get to talking, and the man lets Henry and Becky know that he's a minister by the name of Reuben Moore, and he belongs to what's known as the House of Prayer in Stoneburg, Texas, and it's a fanatical fringe Christian group. Oh. There's no way around saying this, but they're 100% a cult because they have a, a commune. So you live there, like when you join that church. Right. Yeah. So it's like David Koresh 1.0 before David Koresh was around. Yeah, I I really found nothing to see that they're anything less than peaceful people, though, from what I'm seeing. But yeah, it seems like that. Well, well same could be said for I was about Koresh. To say, David Koresh was peaceful until Absolutely, the he government was. came at him. So very true. Yeah, so I'm not saying they're bad people, but it is a cult. But not my cup of tea. I was but just relating it to yeah. the style of things that, that David Koresh's oh for sure group was. Texas is very famous for all. We're the very cults. famous for you know, <laughs> religious cults. It's. Uh, Fanatical religious ideology over here, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Go, Texas. <laughs> Go, Texas. Always looking for more members, uh, Reverend Reuben Moore offered Henry and Becky, who were claiming that they were a married couple, an apartment for them to live in in exchange for Henry doing some handiwork at the commune. Something tells me this group didn't care how old she was if they were married either. They don't seem like a group that would be like, oh, that's They definitely, right. you'll see, they definitely tried to take them her under their wing. They see some. I don't know about age, but yeah, they probably try. They to see the mistreatment. Thing. I think. Oh, I was gonna say they probably did the same thing. Koresh did, where every woman was his. Of course, Henry and Becky gleefully accepted. We have a house over our head, you know, a roof over our head, food to eat. It's so funny to me because later on, as we're gonna see, Henry claims that he was a devout Satanist during this time. Not that he had the luxury of being picky about the denomination of the people willing to put a roof over his head, but he doesn't care. care. In fact, it was later said that Henry religiously attended all church meetings and services when he and when he was wasn't dutifully performing his handiwork on the campus. It's a wonder he didn't just burst out in flames in the pews. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how I just I don't know how actually religious these worships were yeah you know what i mean yeah we have no idea they're we have no idea fanatical we have no idea what they're saying in there yeah but um reuben moore um was actually interviewed after henry's arrest and i found his interview part of his interview on newspaper.com which is an awesome website by the way but um he was quoted as saying i enjoyed working with henry he was really dependable and that just kind of goes to show you the charisma of these psychopaths they can Play people like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, but they, they only can do it for short periods of time. Yeah, they can. Not long periods. And they can absolutely turn it on to get what they want, but it's not like they can maintain that for years on years. They'll do a couple oh, of months, sure. maybe a year, but then they, they But that's can't. all they need. Just little short spurts. That's what they're doing. They're yeah. doing a short little stint. They're nomads already. They're just trying to live it out for, you know, three, four months, whatever it is. As we all well know, Henry wasn't like physically attractive, but he could fake a charming personality. Like numerous people said that. And that's I mean, terrifying. He could, come, he could come across as sweet or nice or innocent or whatever, charming. doesn't have to look the part as long as he right. can act the part. Sorry, I lost my place. So case in point. You had to get another beverage. The whole time? No, I didn't. I had to put my old one on the ground. Same <laughs> difference. <laughs> so case in point, the whole time he was charming the pants off these members of the House of Prayer. 
He was simultaneously crossing the Texas-Oklahoma state line, allegedly, to kill when he wasn't needed at the commune, as he would later admit. So, there you have it. With Henry apparently super busy fellowshipping and killing, Becky found herself becoming more and more involved with the other women in the commune and really started to enjoy her newfound faith. Well, she's also first time in her long yeah. adult life. Which is Adult yeah, she, well, she's, she's got like female companionship and other women around and mentors that are just normal. Well, she's she's a kid. She's looking for any semblance of a family a that she can find and normalcy and some peace and structure. Yeah, that's all what kids that's all want. Yeah, all kids want structure. She's probably other females that are her age, maybe a little bit older. She's seen a lot of structure, a lot of family vibe there. Yeah. When I say normal, I'm air quoting it because this shit ain't normal where they're at, but. It's pretty bad when a cult is normal compared normal, to Henry. Normal structure. Yeah. Uh, social social structure. That's, that's where I'm going with it. And like I was saying to you before, Pat, after a bit of time passed, some of the church's members were finding that Henry was just way too controlling and possessive of Becky, and it started to kind of set off some alarm bells. They became protective of her. Yeah, they're, they're bringing her in as one of her own. Yeah. One of their own. This caused the members to embrace Becky even more. In fact, Becky confided in them that she desperately wanted to return back home to Florida to face the music, which is very mature of her. Even she and she even told them even if that meant serving time for being an accomplice, she was she was willing to go back. She wanted to go home. She just wanted to go home. She was tired of living the life of a fugitive on the run. And I think that she honestly is a bit older at this point, a teenager. And she has a little more experience in seeing how people who aren't total pieces of shit live and, you know, treat each other. And she just wants a shot at life. And that's just what she's learning here. She's seeing how they, they probably all treat I mean, they may be a cult, but they're treating each other decently. And right. she's like, oh, holy shit, people treat each other well? Like, what the fuck is this? Now came the hard part, though. She would have to talk to Henry and inform him of her wishes. Easy. Fuck you. I'm out. <laughs> After some arguing, Henry agreed to return with Becky back to Jacksonville. And in August of 1982, the couple said their goodbyes and began hitchhiking back to Florida. That evening, the first night that they left the commune, they were camping out along I-35. We all know where that is Mm -hmm. if you're in Texas. And Henry stabbed Becky to death after a heated argument. Of course he did. Later in his confession to her murder, he would say, and this is a direct quote, quote, we argued for a long time, and it was sort of hot. Heat, you know, and stuff. I took my clothes off and laid down upon a blanket, and Becky took her clothes off except for her bra and panties, and we kept arguing, cussing each other. Finally, I just told her that we were going back the next morning, and she just hauled off and hit me upside the head, and that was it. I just stabbed her with the knife. I just picked it up and brought it around and hit her right in the chest with it. She sort of sat there a little bit and then dropped over. End quote. And this is what's crazy to me. Do you remember, and this is only in the murders, like the confessions of the murders of the people that he allegedly claimed to have loved, like his mother and Becky. Mm -hmm. He always says things. He can never say, I stabbed my mother in the throat, or I stabbed Becky in the chest. He says, I slapped my mother in the throat with a knife in my hand. I hit Becky with a knife in my hand. That kind of stuff. It's weird. He can't say the words. No, because then it makes it real. Yeah. It's very strange to me. But he has no problem confessing to these 
No, because those are people he cares about, so he doesn't want to take the guilt for it. He just wants to make it accidental, and in his mind, he's blaming it accidentally. Like his Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just really weird to me. They were arguing because Henry didn't want her to return to Jacksonville and rat him out and tell everyone all the horrific crimes that he had been yeah, committing so is what happened. A rapist. Exactly. Members of the House in Prayer can even recall hearing the couple arguing weeks before they departed, and they even heard Becky shout, and she said, and if Uncle Otis doesn't come for me, then I'm hitchhiking on my own. And nobody would have put up with the things I have. So it's safe to say that, you know, to Henry, Becky had become a liability. Oh, big time. And he's tired of her, too. He's She's weighing him down. So why not just get Arguing rid of her? all the time. He, yeah. She's not doing what he wants. She's not nine years old anymore. He can't control her, which is sick. So Henry went on to say something else that just really added salt to the wound of Becky being brutally murdered after all this time. Henry said that he, and I quote, had sex with her one last time. He claims that this was his way of mourning his loss of Becky. So he had sex with her body. It's disgusting. This makes me, this really upset me. And I know, I guess I saw it coming. It makes me sad to think that Becky didn't get a chance. Her childhood was stolen from her by her abuser, and he killed her as soon as he was finished with her. He had long, she had long served her purpose, and he didn't have a need for her anymore, so he was just done. And Henry is the most disgusting excuse of a human. A quick murder to me is maybe one thing, but he slowly killed this girl, like figuratively. He stole her life long before he even killed her. It's just upsetting. Oh, her life was over when he when she started rolling with him. As far as Frank, remember Becky's little brother, Frank? Yeah. If you remember from part one, after Frank and Becky's mother killed herself, they were placed in the Florida Department of Health and yeah, Rehabilitation. Well, yeah, and Henry broke Becky out. Frank remained there, and the last I can find of Frank is when he testified at Henry Lee Lucas's trial. And after that, he was a teenager then. And after that, I just can't find anything. I think it's a positive thing. I can't find any arrest records or anything of the sort. There's also a chance that if he was a teenager. He might have changed his name. Uh, well, law enforcement or prosecution, WITSEC type yeah. deal where they just said, look, we're going to give you a whole whole new life. They don't want this kid growing up with that identity. Right, exactly. Like if, they, if they change his name, give him a new identity, put him somewhere with a good family or somewhere, he's got a chance. But if he stays where he's at after testifying his uncle's Henry Lee Lu- or his uncle's Otis. Right. His Otis, his sister Becky, Henry Lee Lucas. Like, he's got no fucking chance. No chance. I just hope he went on to find some happiness, you know? His, his name is probably Jay Smith, and he probably went on good. to have a family and he deserves kids that. and a good job and a nine to five and a white picket fence. And my that's what you can hope for. Him yeah, least. my heart breaks for both him and his sister. They're just, they're often forgotten victims of this story, you know? Well, there's so many fucking victims. Yeah, allegedly, right? But they're, they're, victims too they are victims but they get forgotten especially her because they get bled into the crimes right almost like accomplices so you almost don't feel as bad for them because they're present with all this shit's happening so you're like fuck them but you forget they're like they're children too yeah they're kidnapped basically yeah just as much victims raped and molested and all these other things and you're like well they're there with the murders like so you kind of forget about them heartbreaking I'm glad that one's over with. Them and Adam Walsh. I feel like I can get through the rest if I can get through I mean, them. <laughs> fucking train wreck. That is a fucking horrible episode. So after Becky's murder, Henry felt that his best bet was to return back to the commune and tell them that Becky had run off. He figured 
that this would be returning to Jacksonville and trying to explain to Otis what happened to her. So he went back. Yeah. I just have to say this. This shows how stupid he is. Oh, he's. Oh, just wait. No, he's listen, an idiot. Listen, he left with her to take her back to Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. He kills her on the way. So he's going to go back and say she ran off. Why not just stall a day or two and then show back up and say I dropped her off in Jacksonville? You'll kind of see what he did. Hang on. So, okay, he went back to the house of prayer and, dude, he put on a show. He went to Pastor Moore and he was just sobbing and he prides himself on his acting abilities. Well, he also probably had some genuine emotion because he probably genuinely cared about this girl, mm-hmm. which is why he describes her murder like he did with his mother. Yeah. So he's probably, that's way of his way of letting it out or coping. Or Maybe. He can channel those emotions to serve him. Or they serve him because he can let him out at that point. Mm-hmm. Basically, like you're saying, channel him. He can yeah. actually unleash them and it all comes out. It's all self-serving. Oh, 100%. He, was cla- he claimed to Pastor Moore that Becky had driven off with another man and left him. That's why he was crying. <laughs> now, Moore actually kind of believed him because, and Pastor Moore said this, Everyone at the commune had seen just how abusive and controlling Henry was, so he thought that maybe Becky had a moment of clarity. Maybe she took the first chance yeah. she saw and ran. Yeah, a truck driver, anything. And this, you know, it wasn't too far-fetched for them to believe it. That's not a far-fetched thing. Right. So, Reverend Moore offered to put Henry up once again during this time. Henry would later say that he was just so plagued with guilt, which is bullshit, over killing the love of his life that he was just ready to hang it up. Change his ways, never kill again, become a God-fearing Christian man. He was plagued with guilt. <laughs> yeah. No, never. he was. But and not enough to stop killing. No, but he was plagued with guilt, and that goes back to when we were talking about his, his mom and Becky. Yeah. The way he describes it, you can, exactly. you can see the guilt because he can't admit he can't admit that he did the act intentionally. It's the little things about him that you really have to hone in. I the, slapped my mother in the neck. No, you didn't. You I stabbed your mom in the, in the neck. <laughs> yeah. Those people that mean something to him, mm-hmm. he absolutely cannot sit there and say, I fucking stabbed her. Yeah. I stabbed my mom in the neck. I stabbed Becky in the chest. I killed him. I hit them and somehow the, they got stabbed when I hit them. So can we say that- That usually fucking happens when you're holding a knife and you hit somebody. So can we say that he's not a psychopath? Fuck no. He is a psychopath. He's capable of emotion, huh? No, he's not capable of emotion. Mm. He's- Okay, he is capable of emotion. Any human is capable of emotion. Mm-hmm. He's not capable of expressing emotion or connecting emotion to an event or, yeah. you know, equating, I did this, there's guilt. Right. To him, it's just, she's gone. I'm sad. Right. Poor and me. His body, his mind won't let him say, I did it, because that means he did it. Yeah, he'll never admit guilt to no. Well, he will, but only not, when it serves him. Not to them. Yeah. Not to those murders. Those were just accidents. Yeah. His emotions aren't connected to his actions. Out of his control. <laughs> well, one of the typical things is, you know, a lot of people think psychopaths don't have emotions. They do. They're just disassociated from their actions. Right. They can't connect them or they just don't. Like, so they may feel bad about killing people, but not from killing people. Maybe it's oh, 10 years later or their emotions hit them a week later, whatever it is. What was the weepy crier? The weepy killer. The weepy voice killer. Yeah. He yeah. cry about it. Because he, <laughs> but he kept doing it. <laughs> but he still did it because they weren't. He wasn't associating the two things mentally. He didn't associate his guilt or his weepiness or whatever was right. causing it to the murders. It was disassociated. Yeah, they were not. They were never connected, and that's that's the psychopathy. That's the part of it that it's is, fascinating. It is, and it's that's the part that people kind of sometimes overlook. It's not they don't feel emotions. That those emotions just have no they direct don't correlation to what they do. Yeah. 
Crazy mm. to me. You know, uh, and you talking, it just made me realize we should get your dad on here as a guest, doctorate in psychology. Kill him. That would be amazing. We kill him. First of all, with our language. Second of all, with the amount I drink when we do this. I can be good. Third of all, with the I can stories be good with- you freaking come up with, he'd be like, oh, God, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> I love my father-in-law. <laughs> He's so proper. We're not making fun of him. He's just very, He's a great very guy. proper. I love my father-in-law. So, Kate Rich, remember the elderly woman who Henry swindled? Yeah, the old lady that, yeah. that they eventually had to run away from the town of 10 people. I love how I'm like the elderly woman. And you're like, yeah, the old broad. <laughs> well, I remember the story, yeah. And I had to lean forward to make sure everybody heard me because I was sitting back. So, okay, well, she didn't live too far away from the commune. Kate lived in Ringold. And the House of Prayer was in Stonebridge. And according to Google Maps, it's just over a 20-minute drive down 81 North. Yeah, and that's in the middle of fucking nowhere, Texas. Yeah. It's like an hour east of Wichita Falls. And if you've been to Wichita Falls and turned right, there's nothing. (laughs) Nada. There's nothing. So although relatively close, you can imagine how surprised Mrs. Rich was when Henry came knocking on her door without his young companion, Becky. I mean, the man had swindled her and taken advantage of her. You got some balls, bitch. What you doing here? <laughs> you know? Again, he doesn't equate his crimes with his emotions or what's going on. They're not, there's no connection. Well, on the way driving to her house, Henry had bought a case of beer and drank the whole thing. And we're talking a 20 freaking minute drive. The guy can drink. It's well, crazy. Also has, if, you, if it's a 20 minute drive and you drink a case of beer in that time, that shit ain't hit him yet. Oh, it's going to hit him. Oh, I know. I'm just saying that you're, you're not going to feel the effects of all that beer for another 20, 30 minutes. Henry had been drinking heavily before he decided to visit Mrs. Rich. And when she answered the door, he spun a sad tale about he had no one to turn to and how Becky had gone missing. He seems really good at being the victim to garner sympathy in all situations, which ties back to what we were talking about. Yep. She was shocked to hear that Becky was missing. Remember, Mrs. Rich felt quite a strong maternal connection to her. So she was kindly and invited Henry inside. We can't be certain exactly what happens next, but we do know that Henry would strangle Kate Rich to death before assaulting her corpse. Which, that's not a shock to anybody that's listening. It's said, allegedly, that this monster would carve an upside-down cross on this elderly woman's chest as well. Not a surprise either. He's been staying with a religious fanatical cult. And he's going to... He's a claimed Satanist. He's acting yeah. out. He's, he's not anything. He's stupid. After he was done with her, he brought her body back. This is brazen. He brought her body back to the house of prayer where he was staying and dismembered her there and then spent the remainder of that evening burning each and every piece of Mrs. Rich's body until there was nothing left. Wow. Mrs. Rich didn't have much, so there was nothing for Henry to steal. So he cleaned up after himself when he was at her house, tidied up her whole house before driving off in a hurry. It just looked like he had never been there. And he, this is crazy. So after he went back to the house of prayer, disposed of the body, he headed to California in Pastor Reuben Moore's car. So he stole the pastor's car and drove to California. This dude gives no fucks. No fucks. And this is, I was actually, I was going to ask you beforehand, but I'm saving my question for when I get to this last part. Okay. Okay. So just bear with me. Get it. Get it. I got to build up to it first. Hang on. Oh. Okay. So it, <laughs> it didn't take long for Mrs. Rich's family 
to report her missing. And when they couldn't find her, they their search logically led them to Henry Lee Lucas. So Sheriff Bill Conway went to find him the last place he had been seen, which was the House of Prayer community, right? Yep. Well, Pastor Moore supplied the sheriff with Henry's full name, and it was shocking what Conway found when he looked him up. Henry had a rap sheet a mile long, probably two miles long. <laughs> I mean, he's been around the block, you know? Right, and it, it, what one interesting to note about that is, if you listen to part one, a lot of his crimes were done early 70s, or even a little earlier. If you if you listen to our episodes or if you're a huge crime fan, the federal criminal database... They didn't, didn't talk. ...didn't come around until the late 70s, yeah. early 80s. So states that, didn't talk. So at this point, states are finally talking, records are being connected, but back when he kept getting arrested, no one fucking talked. And he was getting arrested in different states. So now they're seeing... All of his arrests through all those time periods in different states are finally being connected. Exactly. However, where was this guy? He was a drifter, so he could literally be anywhere. Luckily, we're not dealing with a Mensa member or rocket scientist here. So, (laughs) thank God. Remember I said Henry was headed to California? He went to the Smart family. Back to them. He just killed their mother. And he went back to her family. Like, for help. I'm glad he did. Don't get me wrong, but dude, <laughs> that's for, well, he's not smart and he's going to go to the only people he knows in areas Yeah, because he thinks he's just a charmer. He thinks he's, well, I think the, the, the whole thought process was he doesn't want to commit another crime and draw attention, you know, cause he probably has a, an APB out on the vehicle. If I had to guess, yeah, I don't think he thinks that far. Yeah, maybe not. I think he just giving him way too much credit. He knows in that area, so he's going to stop and get help. I mean, he went back to the lady's house down the street. You know what I mean? He doesn't <laughs> clearly have like detailed Einstein level premeditated thought. You're going to poop your pants when I tell you the next part. Okay. He even called ahead to announce his arrival. <laughs> and she knows that. Yeah, they've dead. gotten in touch with her. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so as soon as Henry arrived at their home, Police swarmed the property. Yeah. That's the sound of the police. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like, I was waiting. (laughs) Henry Lee Lucas was arrested and brought in without incident. And that should be the end of it, right? No. Of course not. Never is. Never the case. Oh, these fucking dudes. This next part is really frustrating. And this is what I have a big question about. (laughs) Okay. As soon as Henry was in custody... The car he was driving, Pastor Moore's car, was impounded and searched, and they found tons of blood evidence. Now, we all know that the blood belonged to Kate Rich. We know that. You and I know that. Yeah. But back in those days, 1982, forensic technology was not advanced. So technically, they had no evidence. Well, no, they just, they That's had- not my question yet, though. Hang on, hang on. That blood could be anyone's, even Henry's, which, of course, he claimed that was the case. So well, he they claimed there's, they, they there's blood. They can't test the blood. They just right. there is blood. So without a body and any hard evidence, they had nothing to hold Henry on. So they had to let him go. Infuriating. Yeah. I looked everywhere and was so confused as to why they couldn't hold him on a theft charge for stealing the pastor's car. Why? Uh, that's, that's a pretty easy explanation if you can find the answer. So they can't hold him on the murder. No body, no murder, period. Without a confession, no body, no I murder. get that part, but why not hold them at least on a theft charge while they investigate? Because you don't know the conversation with Pastor Moore. They could have asked Pastor Moore, and him being a man of God, 
you don't I borrowed, know what he borrowed he, it. He said they would, he would asked, let Henry borrow they it. They would say, Did, do you want to press charges? And he'd be like, no, I let him borrow it. At that point, you cannot hold him for stealing a car because the owner said, I let him have it. There's no, there's no theft. At one point, yeah. There's no theft there. So if, 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 if he did that. Even if he you. took it yeah. without his permission, and you know, he, like I said, he's a pastor. He's a man of God. He may have just said, I don't want this man to get in trouble for borrowing the car. No, I let him have it. It's no big deal. I don't want to press charges. Well, that's a shitty ass man of God. I mean, he redeems himself later, but, but he doesn't know that this dude's mass murderer. Yeah, true. He but just thinks he's this simpleton. Guy if you that's take struggling. my fucking car and drive to California, man of God or not, back in the eighties, this is not, and this is a. He's part of their. They probably look at him as not an outsider, but not a, like a full member of their commune, their cult. But they want to give him a chance, but maybe? But he's, he's, he's familiar with them. He's yeah. familiar to them, so they're going to probably look out for him. they don't want bad press either, as we see later. That could be a part of it, too, but mm-hmm. they don't want to be... They may not just, He may just not even want to be involved, so he's like, fuck it, I'll let him have it. Yeah. Or I don't want to press charges. And at that point, they can't hold him on shit. Well, look, I speculated here in my notes. I said possibly Reverend Moore willingly let Lucas borrow his vehicle. I don't know. Even if he didn't, all he has to say is, I don't want to press charges. Yeah. End of story. Done. Well, as we're going to see later, Reverend Moore is very concerned about how his church looks. Yeah, because they're a cult. Yeah, exactly. They're fucking cult. He doesn't want attention. When was David Koresh? When? It was after this, right? 92. Okay. So, that, it was in the name. 90s? I thought it was in the late 80s. I thought Koresh and, uh, what the hell was their name? I vaguely remember it as a child. What was their name? The, 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 the Branch Davidians. Branch Davidians. Yeah, we'll have to cover them one day. Pat's looking it up. Hang on. I am. Hold on. 93. 93. I was 10. Crazy. So Henry's a free guy, (laughs) which is baffling to me. I hate to, I can't believe I'm even saying that right now. It is, but when you go by the rule of law, no, there's no charge for stealing a car. Fuck the rule of law. You can't. That's what the fucking Constitution and shit's about. Bullshit. He fucking stole a vehicle. Yeah, but if someone. no one says he there's stole There's blood it. in the car that he stole. The, they didn't tell Reverend Moore, dude, there's blood in your car. If he had a cut on himself, he could have easily explained it away. You know it was more than cut. I mean, speculating. I'm just saying. I know. I'm, I'm not arguing with you as much as I am just baffled right now. 1980s, they didn't test DNA. They didn't know how to do all that shit. They didn't even collect blood. They just went, ooh, there's fucking blood. <laughs> and if there's no body, there's no way to say that blood came from anything else. He could have said he fucking killed a deer because he was hungry and skinned it. Yeah, I know. They don't fucking know. Ugh. October of 1982, Henry came completely unhinged. And I think this is partly because he probably knew his luck was running out. He's- He's not smart. Well, we see this often with serial killers. What happened when Ted Bundy knew his luck was running out? They get sloppy as fuck. The the sorority house murders. They get sloppy. They can't control. One, they can't control their urges. It's like a spree. They know shit's going down and they stop being cautious. So Henry hitchhiked to Missouri and it was here that he allegedly carjacked a young lady. This is weird. Before killing, assaulting, and robbing her. I looked everywhere for her possible identity and i can't confirm or deny anything even if his confession to this crime holds up or not which is infuriating because he's just telling the story what makes this confession a little hard for me to believe is this and you'll agree with me i know i don't care who you are he said that when he kidnapped her he put her in the back seat and she fell asleep and took a nap the fuck out of here. Okay, if you kidnap me and took my car, I'm not going to take a nap. <laughs> I don't care how tired I am. 
You know what I'm saying? It leads me to believe that he's either saying that so he's not a bad guy or he like knocked her out or fucking chloroformed her or something. Yeah, so I, I all we can say is at the very least part of the story is BS. Yeah, he part of it. the BS part is she fucking laid down and took a fucking nap. If he even did anything. Regardless, he claims that he later abandoned this car and returned to hitchhiking. He made his way to Indiana and then for some reason, thought it would be a great idea to return back to Texas. No. Oh, not just Texas. I know where you're going with this. Back to the house of prayer. What the fuck? He's not smart. He's an idiot. <laughs> he's stupid. And we're glad he's stupid. Good. But, he, <laughs> but damn. He is, you know, it's a, it's a it's a classic trick. Not a classic trick. It's a classic way of law enforcement operating, right? When you're chasing hardened criminals, serial killers, whatever they are, you always watch or you always find their frequented areas wherever they travel. They're not, yeah, they're creatures they're, of habit, they're, always. They're habitual. They go to the people they can trust. The organized ones are, yeah. So they go, because that's what they do. He goes to the same people over and over because he feels like he can trust them because he, even when he did shit to them before, they didn't rat him out. So he feels like he can trust them. We so, always talk about this organized and disorganized killers and it's stupid as Henry is, he's organized. He has an MO and he follows the same protocol every time. Right, right. He's, he's organized. And yeah, that's like I was saying with the law enforcement is like, that's what we always do. You always find out who their friends are. Right. Where they go, where they frequent. And that's what you watch when you're looking for people because they're going to show up at some point. This time though, he smartened up just a tiny bit. Not much. But he didn't call ahead and announce his arrival this time. The last time I called, they had cops waiting. So I'll just wait till I'm there and then <laughs> As you can imagine, Reverend Reuben Moore knew Henry was shady by now. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, now to say a, the least. A dead person, a missing body, and his car was jacked. And it had a bunch of blood in it. Yeah. He had very founded suspicions that he had something to do not only with the disappearance of Kate Rich, but also the disappearance of Becky. Well, now it's adding up. Yeah. Who had become a beloved member of their community. Reuben had enough suspicions regarding Henry's involvement that he decided to play along, which I will commend him for. And I will commend We're him for catch this. Him on something. It's a dangerous ass game to play. He offered Henry a place to stay again and promise, you know, him work and pay. Like, come on in. I'll get you a job. You know, get some rest. Wake up tomorrow and you can get to work. And then as soon as Henry went off to bed, the pastor went straight to the sheriff's office. Reuben had one concern other than getting Henry into custody. Keeping him out of it. He didn't want to make his church and community look bad. So he and the police came up. He didn't want Henry arrested on the property. Right. That's what I'm saying. He wants right. to keep the church out of it. So he and the police came up with a plan to send Henry on an errand the next day. And that way he could be arrested off the church property. And that's exactly what they did. And the next morning, June 15th, 1983, Henry was pulled over running an errand for Reverend Moore in town. Luckily, thank God we need some luck after all this time. During a cursory inspection of the inside the vehicle, Texas Ranger Phil Ryan found an unregistered handgun. And as a felon, it's illegal for Henry to have that. It's a felony. Especially in Texas. So, thankfully, he was arrested and brought in for questioning on the disappearance of Kate Rich. And this motherfucker probably sang. <laughs> okay, so, Henry Lee Lucas is in custody. Yay. Everyone knew this guy was guilty of the disappearance of Kate Rich. And by now, thanks to Reverend Moore, 
They suspected that he had something to do with the disappearance of Becky as well. But no one knew just how bad he really was, right? right? As soon as Henry was in custody, he was stripped down, not given any clothes to wear, and thrown naked into a cold cell. Which, I mean, yeah, fuck him. He doesn't deserve clothing, but it's not humane. And before questioning, not the smartest thing to do, you're going to see that comes back to bite them in the ass. I'm about to say, he's not... It's one thing when they do it to, in a maximum security prison. Can't do that shit. Can't do that shit with it in a holding. Nope. Can't do that. It's bad. So. you lose a whole case just based off of that. Big no-no. He spent a night just like this, miserable and not fed either, before they brought him in for questioning the next morning. And I can tell you this, and I just wanted to jump on that a second. When you're talking about how that's a big no-no, I can tell you this from my work in law enforcement. Anything I ever did, Mm -hmm. they don't question the fucking evidence. Yeah. I've testified in court martials. I've testified in civilian courts. I've testified as law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I was never attacked on what the motherfucker did. Yeah. I was attacked on how I acted, what I said verbatim, how I wrote paperwork, how I signed something, how I did it. Any loophole where you fuck that up or you do it wrong or you infringe on something, it's fucking done. And rightfully so, because the evidence is going to speak for itself, you know, and everybody needs to do their jobs here. I've you know? testified in dozens of DUI cases where I yeah. was an arresting officer and I've actually had to perform in every single one until mm-hmm. my reputation got to a point. Yeah. I had to testify and actually go step by step through the tests I would run on a Good. driver. Like I had to sit there and do the pen test. I had to give the entire instructions on how to do walk a straight and line. And it's all recorded, of course. And, it's, and I had to do this over and over. Yes. And the defense would try to find one little thing different than what was on paper or what we're supposed to do. And they would try to attack that. Well, obviously, bad cops mess it up for all the decent ones. So, I, I mean, mean it's well-founded. Not bad cops mess it up. It's just the system, even back then, is not about guilty or innocent. It's about technicalities. Right. Yeah. Very, very true. You'll see, you've, we've all heard murderers and seen murderers and you're like, how did they get acquitted? Yeah. Mistrials. Because if somebody fucked something up along the way, maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they were bad. But if you make one mistake in the law enforcement side, it can throw an entire case out. It's crazy. So after about an hour of questioning, Henry starts to spill his guts, at least in regards to the murder of Kate Rich only. He told police all the grisly details, everything that I just described in her murder but claimed to not be able to remember where he had burned her body, which is bullshit. He remembers. Yeah. To give Henry a little incentive, the men interrogating him went and got him a pack of cigs and a hot meal. And like magic, he remembered. (laughs) It was amazing. Oldest trick in the book, man. He provided enough information for the authorities to guarantee a conviction. Good cop, bad cop. Complete confession. Henry, Henry even went on to sign a confession. However, as soon as he was appointed a defense attorney, a man by the name of Ron Ponton, the lawyer had Henry recant his confession, claiming that it was extracted while Henry was under duress. Mm -hmm. Due to the way Henry was treated prior to the confession, he's Mm -hmm. exactly fucking right. Unfortunately, without this confession, they had no case because there was no evidence. There was no body. Well, that's also one thing every defense lawyer in the world will do Mm -hmm. once they're assigned to a case. If that person has already been has confessed, mm-hmm. they'll try to get him to recant or they'll try to get the statement thrown out saying that they were under uh, duress or under duress or I can't remember the word now to save me like basically being forced to give the confession. A coerced. Coerced. That's mm-hmm. the word I was looking for. Or coerced. So they're gonna say they were under distress or coerced and nine out of ten times that might hold that holds up. Yeah. Absolutely. To get rid of the confession because unless the cops have it videotaped, 
which is why they videotape those confessions now. Yep. Back then, they just recorded them. Mm-hmm. You, with the videotape, you can obviously look by you know gestures, body, and body movement, and, yeah. and how they're acting. If they're, they're under duress or being forced, that's why they don't hold up now. But back then, they all held up because you'd be like, no, he was forced to sign this shit. And so with that, we're going to take a quick pause because I, I need a damn break real quick. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll get a little sponsor ad going on here. And we are back from our break. Sorry, uh, we had a bathroom need and I had a severe beer need, so. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> we're doing these two fucking psychopaths. And I promise you, it get of. no more murders. It gets interesting now. I don't care if there's more murders or not. These two are too much to deal with at this point. Now we get to deal with law enforcement, so. That makes me more, that's worse, because I get more I stressed out about I that than the do. actual murders. <laughs> okay, so Henry's lawyered up. They have no evidence. Authorities had nothing to go on. So they needed to rely on a forensics team to go out there and find some damn evidence. It's their their last shot. Investigators went out to Kate Rich's house and in her wood burning oven, they found a single blackened bone fragment. Nice. Tests were run (laughs) and it was found to, in fact, I say in fact, it was found to maybe have been a human bone. We'll put it that way. So, however, due to the intense heat, there wasn't any way that any other information could be extracted from this bone. There was just so much damage to the bone itself. I'm making faces at you and I'm like, oh, Specialists claimed that there's a very small marginal chance that the bone could be, belong to another species. So, whatever the case, you could speculate, but it's, it's not usable. No, because it sows a seed of doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Our, prosecute, our defense attorney could look at it and sow doubt, saying you're not 100% sure that was even human. Right. And then as soon as you do that, there's doubt gone. Case so, the, yeah. So, case in point, that's useless. The bone's useless. It could have belonged to anyone, anything, a chicken. And this is in like 1982 or 83. So, we're not talking about the high level. And a very rural little. <laughs> even if they sent it to the state crime yeah. lab. You know what I mean? We If we send it out now, they could tell you like what you ate in 2009 from your burnt bone fragment. <laughs> I really feel that's. I hope that's the case because of the technological the technological advancements that we've had since then. But back then, they were barely touching the surface of DNA. They didn't know what they were doing. So Kate Rich's home was a dead end. Investigators then turned their attention to the disappearance of Frida or Becky Powell. Because remember, Frida is her real name. Yeah. Um, he didn't like it, so he called her Becky. Exactly. They went on a very. Maybe they're going to have more luck there. They went on a very long and drawn out search for her remains. And lo and behold, guys, they found her body. And piece by piece, in very rural areas, they were able to piece her back together. Mm-hmm. She was found specifically in fields near Highway 380 and Interstate 35 in Denton, which we're familiar with. Yeah. it's uh, But, you know, for people that are wondering how the hell they could do that, it's pretty easy to do, right? So you talk to the, the community members and you find out when they left and when he returned. And it basically can give you a range of how far you could have gotten. The forensics team, they assembled her body, like I said, minus her head. Of course, we've seen that with everything he's done. And at that time, the head was absolutely crucial in identifying the body. It held dental everything. Records. Dental back then, records. Dental records were everything back then. They needed her teeth for a dental ID. So another dead end. I mean, which dental records are still the Well, I was confused. Uh, fingerprints, but by then, there's no know, fingerprints there's on no bones. There's no fingerprints on bones. And if she's been... 
if she's been out in the elements for yeah that long, animals have torn all. There's no flesh left. The animals in decomposition have taken care of that. It's so frustrating. Which so, is probably part of the reason why she was so scattered about too, is because animals had gotten to her. They didn't have a lot, but they did have a f- few pieces of circumstantial evidence, and along with Henry's not discredited confession. Authorities felt that they had enough to convict Henry of both the murder of Kate Rich and Frida Becky Powell. Surprisingly, during Henry's day in court, he pled guilty to both of the murders, and everything went smoothly and pretty normal that day. That is, until Henry stood up and asked the judge after he was convicted. He said, what about the other hundred women I've killed? And his lawyer was like, oh, my God, shut the fuck up. (laughs) If I'm his lawyer, he's already convicted at that point. I'm literally going to get up and be like, well, I'm gone. (laughs) Fuck this guy. I wish I could have been in that courtroom, guys. I can't even imagine. Could you imagine the judge? He's like, I'm sorry, what? Como say what? What the fuck did you just say to me? Anyways, Henry, he did receive two life sentences for the murder of Becky Powell, Frida Becky Powell and Kate Rich. Um, so he's never going to well, get out say again. It was current or consecutive? Concurrent. Uh, he can get out. I'm sorry. Consecutive? Yeah, consecutive. Right. Um, For those that don't have never listened before, don't understand that, concurrent and consecutive. If you I get, get I'm confused, but no, yeah, it's well, consecutive. If you, if you get multiple life sentences, if they're served consecutively, it's one after another, which most people think. But most people also don't understand life in prison is 40 years. It's not until mm-hmm. you die. Yeah. It, you can be out after 40 years if, with a life sentence. So consecutive is I serve my one sentence, now I start my next one. Concurrent means as soon as I start serving my first, I'm serving all the others at the same time. I'm just going to serve the most severe penalty. So if you've got 10 years for one thing, 15 years for another thing, 20 years for another thing, you're not serving 40, 35 years in prison. You're serving no. 20. The other yeah. two are just served while you're serving the major sentence. Exactly. I got you. So he was taken off to Williamson County Jail where he would live out the remainder of his days. And this is where you would think the story would end. No. But Never no. does. Actually, this is where it gets really interesting. <laughs> okay, so by now, Henry's pretty crazy claims had caught the public's attention when he made the outburst in court. <sighs> Bless you. Oh, sorry. I was trying to hold that. When he made the outburst in court saying, well, what about the other what about 100, 100 people? Everybody's like, wait, what the fuck about the other 100 people? <laughs> uh, so everyone's like, huh? Are we going to skip over this? Like, yeah. what's going on here? It also caught the attorney general's attention. And probably the FBI at that point. And everyone was really wanting to know if they had the world's most prolific serial killer on their hands because, according to Henry, they did. Well, because he would have topped, you know, one of America, America's top ones at that time were still, what, like Bundy, Dahmer? Mm-hmm. He would have topped them almost. He would have almost doubled Bundy. In no time... This is where it gets messy. The elite Texas Rangers swooped in to Williamson County Jail, where Henry was now being held. And they quickly assembled what what would be known as the Lucas Task Force. Now, guys, if you're not familiar with the Texas Rangers, I did not know this. But they conduct major violent crime, public corruption, cold cases, and the like. And they oversee our border security here in Texas and crisis negotiation programs. They're also above all other law enforcements here in our state of Texas. They're at the top of the food chain, so to speak. They are number one above yeah. anyone else so, who comes in. So to, to put clarity on here, that, they're almost revered, they're almost looked at as like the, the special forces of Texas yeah. law enforcement. Yeah. But they're also, condu- they're almost like Texas's version of the FBI. 
but they're more cowboyish. I don't want to say that because I don't want to discredit the Rangers because they're amazing. They've done, they've messed up on things. Well, not here, but no, yeah. But they are amazing. They've done they amazing can be. things. Chuck Norris was one of the best Rangers I've ever met in my life. <laughs> in your whole life? My whole life. Your whole life? Uh, <laughs> no, but seriously, they are, they, that's, they are honestly, they're like, when you look at the military, you take Delta Force or Navy SEALs. They are them of Texas law enforcement. They're above. They're the Chuck they're, Norris of they're everything. They're almost above law. Well, they. But they're, they're not. They're stupid they here. There's, yeah. there's, there's high levels you can get in law enforcement in Texas. So with all this authority and power, you would think that they would know better <laughs> than to take what a serial killer had to say at face value. But that's exactly what they did. They brought Henry in daily, letting him roam free, uncuffed around the prison. Now, remember, he's serving two life sentences. Two life sentences. <laughs> they gave him whatever he wanted to eat and drink as long as he kept talking. At one point, he even was answering the phone set up in the offices for this so-called task force. And I have a picture of that, in fact, that I'll post on our Instagram. He literally looks like he's working there, just answering the phone. Like, hey, it's Henry. You they're trying leave? to make him. I mean, I see what they're doing. They're trying to make him as comfortable as possible so he talks. They also don't see him as much of a threat because I don't know if they know, but for what they can tell, he's not killed any men. Yeah. He's only killed women and young girls. Maybe. Or little kids. So they don't see him as much of a threat to like a bunch of dudes. Once he started to claim to know where the bodies were, the Rangers flew him all around the U.S. on private jets, staying in fancy hotels and eating in five-star restaurants everywhere they stopped. He was living better than you and I, effectively. Because, well, again, they're trying to just whine and dine. They're whining and dine. They're like, they're like that 25-year-old guy that's trying to go out on a date with a pretty girl. He's trying to Hang whine on. and dine her and get her Hang on. So here's what's happening in a nutshell. A police station in, let's say, just theoretically, okay, let's say Virginia calls the Texas Rangers and they say, hey, we have this cold case from 1976. Do you think Henry's good for it? Henry says, oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. I did that. So the Rangers suit him up, fly him out. And y'all, more times than not, Henry is left alone in a room once he gets to the police station and wherever with these case files being allowed to look through them retain all this information, then he's questioned, recorded, and he's able to provide very case-specific details that only someone present during the crime would know. Do you see what I'm saying? He's being fed information. Yeah, but in his mind, he's doing what he's being. He's honestly being smart. Henry? Yeah. Well, yeah, he's getting whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, he's not sitting in the 8 But the 10. Texas Rangers are yeah, exactly. just, just hang on. It no, gets I'm saying, worse. They're, they're, feeding, they're feeding him info because they're basically just trying to close all this shit. I'm livid right now. I'm shaking. They're I trying to close so all this shit. Angry. You know what? If they close 100 murders doing this shit, they look like fucking saints. Oh, just wait. Just wait. Because you're going to shake when you hear this shit. I was, I wanted to punch someone. <laughs> okay. So then after a case was closed, there would be times when the Rangers would throw Lucas parties in hotels. They particularly loved the Holiday Inn. They would throw in parties to celebrate, sometimes spending upwards of $3,000 on one party. And at one point, they even provided him with liquor and prostitutes. A convicted felon serving two life sentences, mind you. And I'm hitting the table because I'm mad. <laughs> and I do it again. <laughs> I'm over here whispering at her like, stop hitting the table. <laughs> However, there's one problem. The truth tends to always come out. Yeah, always does. The dates of many of these murders that left Henry that 
the dates of many of the murders that Henry confessed to, sorry, would literally have required Henry to be two places at one time in some instances. In one incident, Henry would have had to travel 5,000 miles in 24 hours across the country in order to be responsible for some of the crimes that he confessed to. Not impossible, unlikely. The Rangers' whole little game was blown apart publicly by the Dallas Times-Herald when they printed an article revealing that there was no way Lucas could have committed all these crimes based on logistics alone. The Rangers looked good as long as Henry was closing all these cases across the country. They looked fucking amazing. They looked like they were the saviors. And Henry was willing to play their game as long as he was living the high life. I mean, who wouldn't? He's in a hotel. He's in restaurants. He's not. You know how this guy grow up. Grow grow up. Grow up. It's not even that. (laughs) Grow up. It's not even that in depth. It's he's either in an eight by ten concrete cell, or he's in hotels and fucking restaurants. What are you gonna pick? I mean, I'm just. I'm so. I'm, it makes me so angry. I'm just saying, like he's even without any of his ill intent. You on should anything, watch that documentary. Would you rather be in a cell or would you rather be in a hotel or a restaurant? I'm fucking doing whatever you want me to. I'm already going. I'm dying in a prison. You should watch that confession killer documentary mm-hmm. because I found it boring. But it's all it's none about the murders. It's all it's, about, it's all about, about this. Texas shit. And you would you would thrive off that. I'll but I'll pick it apart. Oh, it just it really it just makes me red faced no, and get mad. Why you're so mad. I'm just I'm just saying with him like he's, he's gonna die in prison and they're offering him hotels and shit. I'd be like fuck yeah, I'll confess to whatever you want. I'm dead anyway. So, guess who showed up to play along with Henry? Don't tell me fucking old tool bag. Yeah, his one time lover, protege, and uncle of Becky Powell, Otis Tool. Even after he's been convicted of killing Becky. So, where is old Otis Tool these days? Otis, sorry. He is in prison serving two consecutive life sentences for an unrelated arson incident that had taken the life of two people. Much like his ex-lover, Henry. Another parallel, they're both serving <laughs> two, two consecutive. Two yeah. two murders. Also, fun side note, just to lighten, well, I don't want, I don't want to say lighten the mood, but interesting tidbit. Um Otis Tool was in a cell in Florida next door to Ted Bundy. Well, it's death row. They're not going to have the nicest fucking people there. Crazy, right? Well, not death row yet. Well, maybe. Because Otis wasn't on death row. Well, Ted was in death row. Ted was, but Otis wasn't, I don't believe. Well, he made just, they made me, maybe it wasn't death row. Maybe it's where they kept them. Where they kept them. The worst of the worst. Yeah. Which is like, what is that, Colorado Supermax right now where they have Ted Kaczynski and like four other people that are like, Oh, that's crazy. They're like some of the craziest motherfuckers in the past 30 years are all in the same wing. Oh my God. Because that's where they keep all the... Burn it. You get 10 minutes out of your yeah. cell a day, no. people. Like, by yourself, no one around you. And here's Henry going on private jets. It just oh. makes you... It, Staying at Holiday Inns, getting hookers and eating it fucking Outback. It makes you want to, like, riot. It makes me so angry, you know? Anyways. Well, anyways, Otis had caught wind of Henry's admission to killing hundreds of women... And he was going along with it gleefully. If you haven't caught on with the dynamic between these two, whatever Henry does, wherever he goes, Otis follows. No question. Otis does whatever Henry does. He is like a pathetic little puppy. He's in love. He's been in love with him since the first five minutes they were around each other. So they, of course, started to speak daily, very much still seemingly in love and seemingly involved in a very committed relationship. Eventually, Henry wanted to garner more attention. Guys, just wait till you hear this. (laughs) Henry wanted to garner more attention on a much bigger scale because, you know, it's not big enough already. Well. And Otis was just the person to help him do it. Thus, 
the hands of death was born. Oh, my Lord. What the fuck, right? No, but you know what? You see this with every fucking serial killer out there. Once they're caught and they're done and they're dead to rights, they just want fucking attention. So this is going to sound very offbeat to you and I, but it didn't back then, and you'll see why. So according to Henry, he and Otis, as well as many other serial killers, which they just got done with the 70s, which was, you know, serial killers. killers. Yeah, exactly. So between the 70s and 80s, um, all serial killers, according to Henry and Otis, were all part of a satanic organization that was used to specifically destabilize America. I'd also love to know who came up with the name Hands of Death. Zero out of 10 for creativity. Zero out of 10 creativity. (laughs) But you think of that time frame, like we said, and you're talking about, you're literally talking Hitchhiker Killer, Zodiac, BTK was operating back then, uh, Bundy, Dahmer. Well, uh, yeah. Son of Sam. Further. Now we may think Henry's claim sounds asinine, but you have to remember that Henry was spouting off this BS right smack in the middle or just after the satanic panic era. Yeah, and I Ramirez. I mean, look what happened to the West Memphis, Memphis Three, the satanic panic. I mean, it put kids in jail that should have never been there to begin with. We'll cover them one day. Yeah. If there was any yeah. time to blame Satan, it was now. Yeah, and an amazing side note that I still, I always talk about this every time she talks about the West Memphis Three. Any Stranger Things fans out there I'm trying to lighten the mood a little bit here. If you watch season four, Eddie Munson... His character was based off of loosely the West Memphis Three. Where'd you get that bullshit from? It's true. The, the Satanic Panic. Oh. Remember how they all thought Eddie Munson was part of the cult and he was responsible for all those things and they chased after him and he was wrongfully attacked and stuff like that? Literally, the director, the writer said it was, they based his character. Are you part of a, um, a Stranger Things like cult now? No. Oh. No, the writers actually came out and said we based him off of the what's his face from the West Memphis. Oh, they came out and said it. One of the main ones from the story, they basically based that character off of not what they did, but the Mm -hmm. era and how they were accused and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, satanic panic. So, with Otis confirming that all of this bullshit was absolutely true, they provided enough seemingly believable details that Florida police were sent out to search the Everglades for, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but the Hands of Death secret headquarters. (laughs) Okay. Of course, they didn't find anything. So if you lived in Florida in the early 80s, your taxpayer dollars funded that shit. And I'm sorry, because it was actually a very expensive, like, excavation. Oh, sure. The Everglades are a massive area, so they're going to the amount of resources and money they're going to dump into doing that is... Absolutely. Especially if they like, oh my God, all these serial killers are connected by a cult? Let's fucking do it. <laughs> Satan? <gasps> That'd be a game changer. Like, to be the ones that figured that out. That put it found together. this Satan's headquarters? <laughs> Potentially so stop all serial killers from the future? Oh my God. So, oh, gets worse. Henry would go on to claim that the hands of death were responsible for the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. What? He... <laughs> He even claimed that when Jim Jones had his followers at Jonestown commit mass suicide, that it was he and Otis who had been called to deliver the poison there. You gotta be fucking kidding me. Mm-mm, I'm not. So the hands of death theory was kind of put to bed over time. Although I'm sure there's still some people, I know there's still some people who believe it. It's true. And it really exists. And that's where all these people came from. Like a 
It's like a, a 1970s and 80s serial killer conspiracy theory. It's weird. People believe this shit. Well, because there was such a... In the 60s, there was like no serial killers there were, but no one saw it. Yeah, there in were. In the 70s and 80s, all of a sudden, everybody was fucking killing everybody. And you're like, what the hell is There's always serial killers. I know. But we have talked about it. Was it the year of the serial killer? Mm-hmm. We talked about it in one episode. And that was in the 70s. Yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. So let's circle back real quick. And Pat's going to remember this. This is another reason you got to listen to part one first. So let's circle back to a real crime that I spoke to you about in part one. Do you remember orange socks? I remember I remember the orange socks. It was okay. part of a murder. So a quick little refresher. Henry had confessed to a very brutal murder of a young girl in Oklahoma. We described the state of her remains in part one, and I'm not going to put you through that again. Nope. It was bad. But what made his confession believable was the fact that he stated that the victim, still unidentified at this time, was wearing orange socks. Well, on her feet, she when she was found... There were indeed orange socks. When the body was found, yeah. Yeah, so it's got to be him, right? Because there's no other orange socks in existence. Right. Well, I mean, that is kind of very specific. It's very specific, so it's definitely not coincidental, but it could be because they made more than one pair of orange socks in the history of socks. Yep. Well, her her (laughs) her murder had captured national attention for quite some time. And with Henry's very detailed confession, the Texas Attorney General was ready to press charges, so they went ahead and convicted Henry of the murder of the unidentified woman, crudely known as Orange Socks, which makes me sick. I mean, at least call her Jane Doe or something. Like, it's, you know, it's just, I don't know. It just seems kind of rude to me. Impersonal. Impersonal. Like she was just nothing more than a pair of socks. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, in the courtroom, the jury were shown Henry's unwavering confession video. And Henry's lawyer thought that he had a proverbial dog in this fight since both Otis and Henry had confessed to this murder. So he tried to argue that point. But the jury just couldn't get past Henry's very detailed account of the brutal murder that he claimed to have committed. So as a result, he was convicted of the murder of the young girl known only as Orange Socks. Now, the conviction didn't bother Henry, but what did get to him this time was when the judge sentenced him to death. He, a big he, game changer. Well, he didn't think of that. Yeah, he's a big game changer. He's like, oh, I'm taking credit for all this shit. I'm getting life sentences. That's all that's going to happen to me. I already got them. And we see this with a lot of these assholes. They're scared to die. No one wants to die. I know, but it's just so odd to me that Henry, Bundy, all these these serial killers that commit these horrible crimes they're i don't want to die <laughs> but death death is not on their mind yeah it's not their death it's not their death isn't their dying is everything's remember this is all about control most of the time mm-hmm. so their death is in their control it, it's going to be a long time from now when they're old and whatever but now that someone else has taken that and they're saying no you're fucking dying they become little little bitches and want to cry and be like man i don't want to die no one else did that you fucking murdered exactly side note Stay tuned until the end because I have another update on this young girl known as Orange Socks that you're going to want to hear. And it's positive. So even after the Texas Rangers little game had effectively been publicly blown apart, the Lucas Task Force, along with Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, reconvened. (laughs) And the pair just kept on confessing. Kept on. Because we have, I know that it was like thought that he committed 600 to 1,000 crimes. But in some sources I read, it was 
up to 3000 I mean, it's just so stupid at this point. So now that the Rangers were suffering some public scrutiny, they had to crack down on how much info they started to feed Henry and Otis. No shit. Yeah. They're just claiming everything. About various cases before they recorded confessions because they'd feed them and then record them. But don't worry. Thanks to a hard-hitting female Dallas detective by the name of Linda Irwin, she was key in the case of shutting down the Ranger, the Rangers and Henry's credibility, and she did it in a badass way. So from the time that Irwin heard about Henry's numerous confessions, she thought that he was just, like, full of shit. She was like, no way. So she contacted the Lucas Task Force and was like, hey, I have this cold case on the books that Henry looks pretty good for, and I'd like you to bring him in. So, of course, they did. Probably first class. She had Henry look over a bunch of pictures from investigations, and she purposefully stood in earshot of him when discussing the case. And sure enough, Henry gave a confession that would have been good enough for a conviction. However, she fabricated the whole thing. The whole case was made up as a ruse to catch Henry confessing to a murder that literally never happened. And she's a bad bitch. Go her. Well, if you suspect him of doing that, that's the best way to do it. That's the best way to do it. See if he confesses to some bullshit out of like a movie or something. And he did. By 1986, word had spread to literally every law enforcement agency that Henry could not be trusted. Which is a shame because Henry could very well be responsible for more murders out there than the three that we know. I'm sure he was responsible for dozens more. Aside from the thousands that he confessed to, but we will never know because he can't be trusted, you know? And also, the 213 cold cases that were declared solved that he confessed to, did he even commit those crimes? No. There's no way. Some of them. Some of them, maybe, but he didn't commit all of them. In fact, it was even later found to be questionable that Henry committed the murder of the young woman known as Orange Socks. You see, Henry, at the time, the young woman known as Orange Socks was murdered in Texas, or, sorry, in Oklahoma. Henry was clocked in at his roofing job during the time of her murder in Florida. There's no way he could have committed that crime. Kind of hard to be two places at one time. And guys, this is just one of many examples Investigators didn't even bother to cross-check before stamping a case file with a solve stamp. And it, it's and these families will never have answers. They you never know? have peace. No. More years kept being tacked on to his sentence, which, remember, he's already sentenced to death. His death but doesn't matter. Anymore. I know, but it's just, I guess, customary. It is customary. You want to keep putting everything you can on him to put it on him. Henry's life on death row stopped being as glamorous, thank God, as it once was. Once people stop believing his crazy stories. Yeah, he's discredited now. Fuck him. He gets it in a cage. There got to be a point where his only joy was when he got to speak to his ex-lover, Otis, during their once-a-week phone call, which they maintained up until September 1996 when Otis died of liver failure. Otis's, <laughs> Otis's final words were a deathbed confession, like we talked about earlier, to the brutal murder of little Adam Walsh and the horrific tale that went along with it. That's fucking bullshit. Fucking dies fucking natural causes. Yeah. They should have fucking executed him before he died. Oh, he's dying? How much has he got? A week? Fucking kill him now. Exactly. No one came to claim Otis's body after he died, so he was buried in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery. Two years after Otis's death, 
Texas Governor George W. Bush. W. Bush. Sorry. W. W. Commuted Henry's death sentence to life imprisonment, which actually would be the only time that a future president would do so in their whole career. One good thing that came out of this whole ordeal is that thanks to the circuits put on by law enforcement along with Henry and Otis, convictions without evidence based on confessions only became nearly non-existent here in the U.S. So that's no, a good and, thing. And that's a good point to bring up because until this point, no evidence, all you needed was a confession. If they fucking confessed, it was guilty. 70s, yeah. 80s. If they confessed, done. You didn't need shit for evidence. Even now, if they confess, you got shit. It just helps. Yeah, you need some evidence to back you, it up. You need to link it. <laughs> you need to show it. Burden of proof. And finally, on March 13, 2001, Henry Lee Lucas finally passed away due to heart failure. So, bye-bye to him. Fuck him. He should have been put to death. But we do have some good news. And I'm saving it till now because since this is such a lengthy story, uh, I wanted to stay somewhat chronological as well as end on a positive note. The woman known for four, four decades only as Orange Socks was finally positively identified in 2019. Jeez. That's not long ago, guys. Technology came a long way, though. She was positively identified as 23-year-old Deborah Jackson of Abilene, Texas. Unfortunately, as was so common back in those days, Deborah was not reported missing by her family because she had left home for long periods of time in the past. And it was believed that this time she had just simply not returned home. That was the seventies where they hitchhiked yeah. all over the place and no one no one reported a missing if you were gone for a week. How many times have we heard that in these cases? Every just, one of these fucking yeah, stories. Hitchhiker killer, all these stories. Ultimately, when no one came to claim the young girl's body, Deborah's remains were laid to rest in Georgetown Cemetery in a grave marked Unidentified Woman 1979. Devastating to say the least. My heart goes out to her surviving family members. I will, of course, be posting a photo of Deborah on our social media. She remained nameless for all these decades, so I want to make sure to give her all the notoriety she deserves now. She's literally nameless for the amount of years I've been on this earth. Absolutely. It's crazy. And it's heartbreaking. Like, she died two years before I was born. Yeah. And two, three years ago, she was identified. Yeah. It's fucking nuts. I know. It's wrong. That's <laughs> what it is. So, the question arises, how many murders did Henry commit? Criminologists over the years have had the arduous task of picking this case apart and weeding through all the bullshit. And it is thought that with a large degree of certainty that Henry and Otis combined together, so together, they have killed 40 people. That's what we think. And I tend to agree with that. I feel comfortable and confident saying that I agree with that. It's a comfortable number than 300 or 3,000. Right, and that, and my next point was, Lord knows I agree with that number over the 600 to 1,000 people they confessed to. Regardless of the number, I want to end with the victims in mind, the victims that they killed, known and unknown, as well as the victims that they, in fact, didn't kill, but in lying, they robbed their families of ever obtaining any closure or peace. It's 200 people that he cold, cold cases he claimed to fucking be a part of. And finally, the two children who they robbed of a childhood who were so often forgotten in this crazy story, Frank and Frida Powell. True. So although they may not have killed 600 to 1,000 people as they wanted us to believe, in a sense, they destroyed that many lives, at least. Oh, they destroyed way more many lives. And but on a positive note, I don't know if you had, did you have a positive spin coming after that? Um, No. My positive note was they are directly responsible 
for saving or f- helping 10 times those many lives. Yeah, especially with um, John Walsh. And- well, with many things. With John Walsh. Mm-hmm. I mean, he went on to do whatever he did. And the laws that came from all this. And the laws that came from that. The law changes from confessions that mm-hmm. came from that. Yeah. So many good things actually. That's why, so I wanted to hit that too. Is like obviously you want to remember the victims and all the things that they, the people, the, the lives they Because ruined. of them we have this. But because of yeah. them. This is the first story we've really covered that because of these two, so many fucking good things came from. So many. So many kids have been brought home because Adam was never brought home. Adam was never brought home and John Walsh made it his life's mission. Yeah. To bring so many others home. And that's, I mean, that that gets you. Like right in the feelers. (laughs) That number is not 600 people lives they ruined. Yeah. That's 6,000 to 60,000 or 600. You're getting choked up. Because it's amazing. That's so sweet. (laughs) It's amazing that good can come from this. I know. I know. You're making me cry too. I know. I don't want to fucking stab them both in their fucking eyes with a fucking rusty screwdriver, but. You'll feel better if you do. I fucking feel so much better. (laughs) Well, they're both dead. So. I'm fucking stab their corpse. I'm gonna break them. I'm gonna make them alive and then kill them again. <laughs> they love violating corpses. I will burn their fucking corpses. You, you go get them, baby. And then shoot them because I like to shoot shit. You go ahead, honey. Like, you know me, I shoot ghosts. So go for it, baby. I'll fucking shoot their ghosts too. You get it. Don't you stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did it, babe. We covered. Henry. I'm fucking done with this one. <laughs> Henry Lee Lucas and Audis the Tool. We did it. Over. The asshat fucking duo. (gasps) (laughs) We fucking talk about Care Bears next week or some shit. It's you next week, babe. Fucking we're covering Barney because that motherfucker (laughs) didn't do anything wrong. (coughs) Actually. I fucking, I know. It's like Mr. Rogers and all these other motherfuckers. (laughs) Mr. Rogers was like a Marine, wasn't he? That's a rumor. He was not the most confirmed killed Marine sniper in fucking Vietnam. It's not true. I don't want to believe it. He was covered in tattoos, though. That's so bad. I think he actually was a Marine, but the stories... He was a Marine. I saw that. The stories just embellish that he was the Marine sniper with the most confirmed kills in Nam. It's fuck not, yeah. That's not real. Come Mr. Rogers. The oh, fuck, oh. Blue's Clues dude scares the shit out of me, though. He's fucking shady. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> now, next week's uh, prison series. Prison, prison series. series. My favorite prison. One of the only prisons I've ever had been into that uh, actually had You're giving it away. No, I'm just one of the only prisons I've been to that's ever had. I've ever had. I've been to tons of prisons. Okay. It's the only one I've ever had an, uh, like a, an encounter. Oh. If you will. Because you know I always deal with some haunted shit in my shit. There's always some haunted aspect of my stuff. Okay. So the prison I took has a personal connection to me. Well, if anyone's still listening this far, the the case I have after your case. You're fucking already excited about it. I'm so excited. Shit out of me. But I discovered that it has a haunted aspect as well. Not just yeah. haunted. But like fucked up, so okay. I'm super excited. You're cool. gonna love it's some for everybody. My cases. Good, we need that. We need that. So with that said, I'm gonna go and like watch the hills again or something. Yeah, something. We love you guys. Be good to each other. Don't be like these douchebags and do weird shit. Fuck these dudes. Love y'all. Bye. <laughs>